Good day, everyone, and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week we take you on a trip down memory lane, back 50 years, and report on all the hockey and sporting news that took place during that time. In this episode, we're looking at the week of October 4th to October 10th, 1970 and for me this is always a great time because this was the opening week of the National Hockey League the first game taking place on Friday October 9th. Each week this podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive and we couldn't do this without their support. They enable us to access all the news from 50 years ago so we can come up with the great content that we have. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company located in beautiful downtown Port Colborne, Ontario. The folks at the Breakwall produce some of the finest craft beers in Ontario. Many of them come from recipes that were first crafted back in the late 1800s in the first breweries that were located in our town at the south end of the Welland Canal. When things get back to somewhat normal, I'd love to meet any of our listeners and have a beer and a burger at the Breakwall. We'd like to tell you a bit about our new Patreon account. Uh, This is a project whereby we're allowing our listeners to subscribe to the podcast. Now, the podcast in a present form will always be available for free on Fridays, but we are planning some very special programming where we'll delve deeply into some of the issues that were taking place around the world of hockey and sport back in the 1970s. If you go to patreon.com and look up Hockey 50 Years, you'll find out our page and you'll be able to subscribe. It's not expensive and each week it will give you some very interesting content plus early access to each Friday's broadcast a day or two in time. So have a look at it, think about it. It would certainly help defray a few of the costs that we experience Uh, when we're putting this little show together. Last week, we had uh, quite a few interesting stories we gave you. We talked about Gordy Howe signing his new contract with the Red Wings. Two years for $100,000 a year. Gordy finally got somewhat close to what he was worth to that Detroit club. Young Daryl Sittler, the Toronto Maple Leafs first draft pick in the June amateur draft, has been having an excellent training camp in for Toronto. He showed flashes of brilliance in a couple exhibition games, giving the Leafs fans a preview of what a fine career this young fella might just have. And Dave Keon, the Maple Leaf captain, contacted National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell in an effort to find a solution to his contract impasse with the Maple Leafs. But as of the end of last week, Dave had not yet signed with the team. In this week's show, the National Hockey League training camps finally come to an end as the NHL season gets underway. We have all the major news and coverage of each of the first games played by the new Buffalo Sabres and Vancouver Canucks. We'll also be talking about predictions for the upcoming season about to start uh, from hockey writers all around the National Hockey League. And we have a lot more to talk about as well. So let's get to it. 
In the San Francisco Examiner, the week was kicked off on Sunday with a full-page advertisement that extolled the residents of the area to line up and get their season tickets that were available in various packages for their Bay Area Seals. As the season was about to get underway, that's what Seals owner Charlie Finley demanded that the team be called. All team stationery was changed to reflect the name Bay Area Seals, and all advertising carried that moniker and that logo. Artwork in the ad depicted the uniform as the one that we would be uh, very familiar with over the next few years with the word seals in script across the front very simple but uh, some people thought very effective however in the seals first game fans in detroit were actually laughing at the crazy outfit at least that's what the fans there called it as the Buffalo Sabres prepared for their National Hockey League debut coming up the uh, following Friday of this week in Pittsburgh, a couple of right-wingers reported to the team from the St. Louis Blues. Ron Anderson was acquired from St. Louis, as we told you about last week, uh, but taking part in the exhibition games along with Anderson when he arrived was a fellow by the name of Steve Atkinson. Steve is a former Boston Bruin and Niagara Falls Flyers junior star who we saw many times playing in junior A games uh, in St. Catharines and Niagara Falls when we went to a lot of those games. Now, we were a little bit uh, confused by this development because no transaction had been reported between Buffalo and St. Louis involving Steve. It was finally reported by Charlie Barton in the Buffalo Courier Express that Atkinson was in the Buffalo camp on what he called a look-see basis. Uh, in the two weekend games in which Steve played, he scored a goal in each of those games. Now, with that kind of production, the Sabres, of course, should add the guy. They're going to need all the goals they can get. But then think of the other side of the equation. Scotty Bowman sees Atkinson go to Buffalo and score two goals. Would he let that kind of production go to an expansion team when he needs offense himself? Sabres general manager coach Punch Emlach says he's going to carry a few extra players into the first couple weeks of the NHL season. Punch says he had not yet decided from between Dave Dryden and Joe Daly as to who would be the backup netminder to number one goalie Roger Crozier. So Punch says both are going to stay with the club for now. I think Daly could be subject to waivers, so I don't think Imlac is quite uh, very eager to send Joe down to the minors. We'll have to check on the rules around this, but that's how Imlac got Daly in the first place from uh, from Pittsburgh. It had to do with a with a waiver deal. The news wasn't all good for Imlac this week either. Two key veterans for the Sabres, Don Marshall and Phil Goyette, uh, both expected to provide much-needed leadership to this young Buffalo team. They left the club's Peterborough training camp and returned to their respective homes in the city of Montreal. 
these two proud veterans at this point in their careers said they really weren't interested in uh, kind of starting all over again, helping a young team get a new operation off the ground. What you have to remember though is these feelings can readily be smoothed over with a few thousand extra dollars and the Sabres well-heeled owners, the Knox Brothers of Buffalo, certainly are capable of smoothing those feelings over in that manner. In Monday of this week, Dave Keon, the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs, got the week off to a rousing start, at least as far as Maple Leaf fans were concerned. You remember we mentioned that Dave was going to contact National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell? Well, after conferring with Campbell and business partners Harry Neal and Mike Ellick, Captain Keon decided to sign his 1970-71 contract with the Maple Leafs. While terms were not disclosed, Toronto General Manager Jim Gregory did make a couple of comments amid the rampant speculation on the amount Keon was going to be paid. Here's what Jim said. There's been a lot of talk about how much Keon's getting. So let's get one thing straight. The figures have all been guesses. Jim went on to say that Dave will not be the highest paid Leaf in the team's history, which of course means that he is not receiving the approximately $85,000 that Tim Horton accepted from Toronto last fall at this time. Jim also went on to say that Kian cannot become the highest paid player in team history even with the performance bonuses he is able to earn. Now you know the Toronto president Stafford Smythe would have to take a shot at this thing as well. Smythe was asked what Keon was getting and he said he's receiving 195000 No, make that $195 million. Smythe wanted to be sure no one was taking him seriously. Smythe said, we made the mistake of revealing contracts before. We're not going to make the same mistake again. The prevailing opinion around Toronto was that Keon would likely be getting paid around $75,000 for this season with some bonuses that could bring him close to what Tim Horton is the highest paid Leaf ever made last season, at least made before he was traded to the Rangers. We've seen many variations on what Horton's salary was claimed to be, but based on looking at just about every report we could find, it was likely between eighty four dollars and $85,000. And we have a bit of an update on Stafford Smythe's uh, income tax evasion case. You remember he and Harold Ballard were charged by the Canadian government for not paying taxes on hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of income. Well, his lawyer, a Toronto solicitor by the name of J.J. Robinette, said uh, at uh, Smythe's first court appearance that the section of the Income Tax Act under which Stafford Smythe was charged violates the Canadian Bill of Rights and he was asking that the charges be summarily dismissed. Now remember, these are not charter rights. This is 1970 and the Charter of Rights that Canada has was still a few years away from being established. Ontario Judge Joseph Kelly was hearing uh, Robinette's arguments and after listening to both sides, 
he simply reserved his decision for at least a few days. So that decision was a little ways away yet, but it kind of smelled like there was some kind of uh, maybe something going on between Smythe and uh, the prosecution and the judges, but uh, that remained to be seen. Here was probably the most shocking news of the week. No one expected this. John Ferguson, a guy who some people call the Montreal Canadiens' most irreplaceable player, informed the team on Wednesday that he was retiring from hockey. Yeah, John Ferguson was calling it quits. In a release statement, Fergie claimed to have no dispute with either the management or coach Claude Ruel. He said he simply felt he could no longer give 100% of himself to his play on the ice. That's amazing. Ferguson said he had reached the decision about a week earlier while en route back to Montreal after an exhibition game in Toronto. He said when he got home, he talked the idea of retirement over with his wife and his business associates before he eventually decided to inform the Canadiens Hockey Club. Now, it was immediately speculated that Ferguson is going to enter into the horse racing business full-time. That's something he's been heavily involved in on a part-time basis, up till now anyway. So John Ferguson may be uh, actually getting involved in what he says is his first love, and that's the ponies, but the Canadians are going to have to try and find a way to do without the truculent Ferguson patrolling left wing at the Forum in Montreal. After missing the playoffs last year, this is a severe blow to the Habs' hopes for this season. Another bit of news from the Canadians, that fine veteran Claude Provo, uh, probably the best defensive forward in the last 10 years in the NHL. Well, Claude cleared waivers and he has now accepted a position as a playing assistant coach of the Montreal Voyagers, the Canadians American Hockey League uh, Farm Club. Uh, Claude began his new post immediately and was seen on the ice instructing uh, Montreal young players on the finer points of defensive hockey and uh, he should uh, provide some pretty good instruction for those kids as they prepare for NHL careers. We have some news on the uh, financially troubled Pittsburgh Penguins franchise. This week, the Mellon National Bank and Trust Company of Pittsburgh filed suit against the Penguins for the unpaid portion of a loan granted to the team's owners, which was made two years ago. The bank is demanding over $3.6 million from the Penguins. The suit declares that the Penguins have repaid only $506,000 of the over $4 million original amount of the loan. This would seem like a pretty open and shut case and the Penguins franchise could be in serious difficulty. While they're trying to minimize any effect this might have on the uh, franchise, at the National Hockey League Board of Governors meetings this week, the issue of the Penguins financial instability was addressed. 
the league was told that the team is indeed for sale, but that it was seeking owners who would commit to keeping the team in Pittsburgh. And that's the story that Clarence Campbell peddled to reporters who queried him at the Board of Governors meeting. The league released a full statement emphasizing this fact, attempting to quell any worries on the part of Pittsburgh hockey fans that their team could be on the move to greener pastures. But we've seen this play out in other scenarios, and it is very troubling. Can the league find a guy like Charlie Finley to take over the Penguins? Uh, here's a news item out of Detroit that, that we kind of had a feeling something like this was coming. The Red Wing superstar, the young superstar Gary Unger, his bruised back has healed more quickly than anticipated, and he was ready to return to the Red Wings workouts and scrimmages. But of course, coach Ned Harkness, who's very used to reeling, ruling with an iron fist and his ability to intimidate young college players who play for free, well, Harkness had something to say about Unger coming back. He pulled Gary aside and informed the young star that he would not be allowed to participate in workouts until he got a haircut and a shave. Unger, you know, had long mod-style hair and was sporting a mustache, something completely unacceptable in the National Hockey League in 1970. Gary responded to Naharkness by saying he's had his hair cut three times, which indicates, of course, this has been an ongoing discussion. It's nothing new to Gary. And Gary said right now his hair is the way he wants it. Both Harkness and general manager Sid Abel said that there need to be a lot more hair shorn from Unger's handsome head, and they told the youngster that in no uncertain terms. Gary showed up to practice on Tuesday with his hair trimmed to what was apparently an acceptable length, and he was allowed to go on the ice with the team. Harkness said he was all cleaned up and he played well there was no problem. After the workout, Harkness said Gary skated with Nick Libet and Wayne Connolly, and he worked very hard, as if longer hair would have prevented him from working very hard. Harkness said that Unger was a little stiff, but that's to be expected after being laid up for four weeks with that bad back. Well, the Vancouver Canucks first game was coming up on Friday. We'll have more on that later. And as of Wednesday... Three players left the team going home. That's to their own home residences. They refused the team's contract offers. Ted Taylor, left winger, a veteran, went back to his Manitoba farm saying he could make more working there than playing for the Canucks. Lassie Oksanen, a Finnish import whom the Canucks hoped would make the team, told the club he would either play in the NHL or not at all and when they offered him a two-way contract, Lassie went back to Finland to play for the national team. And rugged defenseman John Arbor announced that he's heading back east to his Niagara Falls home. He was not at all content with the money that Bud Poyle, the general manager, had offered him. The Canucks were kind of counting on uh, Arbor to lend some uh, grit and uh truculence to their blue line and they they will probably come around and uh offer arbor a little bit more money 
the National Hockey League Board of Governors at their meeting that we mentioned earlier made changes to the rules that determine how ties between teams even for standing positions at the end of the regular season will be broken. The governors more or less rejected President Clarence Campbell's suggestion that the better record between the two tied teams be awarded the position. Instead, they decided that the team with the most wins will be declared the winner, and in the event that both of those teams are still tied with an even number of wins, then the record between the two tied teams would be considered as the tiebreaker. Another item from the NHL Board of Governors meetings, they got around to naming the head of their newly minted security division. The NHL, very conscious about gambling, unless it involves horse racing, wants to make sure that players are not consorting with criminal types. Uh, that comes from the news that recently came out that two unnamed NHL players had ties to companies that were run by the mafia. Well, the new head of the security division is Frank Torpy. He is a former uh, FBI agent, and since his retirement from that agency in 1965, Frank has been employed by the Mobile Oil Company in their corporate safety and security department. NHL President Clarence Campbell said that Mr. Torpy and his staff of representatives in any NHL city will guard against intrusions into our sport of any gambling and underworld elements. Campbell went on to say the criminal intelligence activity will be to prevent and protect against undesirable characters who try to make friends of professional athletes and put them in compromising positions whereby they could seek inside information. And one other Board of Governors note, a kind of an interesting move. The uh, league has decided that all unsigned players, such as the four holdouts from the New York Rangers, they will be considered as, quote, injured in the eyes of the league. Now, by designating unsigned players as being on the injured list in the injured category, teams with holdouts will no longer have to waste a roster spot or ask waivers on these players, and they'll be able to call up any number of replacements from the minors that are required to take the spot of those holdout players in the lineups. This, of course, keeps up players like the four New York holdouts, Park, Kachuk, Rattel, and Hadfield, from having to uh, go on uh, go on waivers or be otherwise exposed to weaker National Hockey League teams. Ah, this is one of the fun parts of this time of the year for me. Uh, a number of the writers around the NHL cities came out this week with their season predictions. Uh, this was always a fun exercise for, for me, uh, a young hockey nut in the years uh, during my teens. Every year at this time, I'd cut out these articles from the newspapers that had the uh, had the predictions, the hockey news, any other newspapers uh, that I could get my hands on. In our household, we received the Welland Tribune and the Hamilton Spectator, and uh, other folks in our community got the Toronto Star and the Gl Toronto Globe and Mail. So I got those papers. Uh, 
I'd also write down my own predictions and then I'd save them for the following spring and see how close I got. Most of the time I wasn't that close. But here are a few of the more prominent predictions that were put forth this week. The Chicago Tribune was first up as they had it on the uh, Sunday before the first games. And uh, their hockey stories are mainly done by their fine hockey reporter, Ted Damata. And uh, another reporter that's joined him recently with some hockey news is Bob Verdi, a very fine writer himself. Uh, the entire Tribune Sports Department apparently was involved in their predictions and they came to a consensus. The Tribune has in the East the Bruins finishing first, followed by Montreal, New York, and Detroit in the playoff spots, and then Toronto, Buffalo, and Vancouver on the outside looking in. In the West Division, I don't think we'll find any predictions that have Chicago anywhere than first. They then followed, according to the Tribune, they will be followed by St. Louis, Minnesota, Philadelphia, Oakland, Pittsburgh, and the Los Angeles Kings bringing up the rear. Ed Conrad of the Philadelphia Daily News gave his version of how things up in the NHL schedule will go coming out in April. Uh, Ed was pretty pretty interesting. He has the Rangers coming first with Boston ending up in second and Canadians in third with the Red Wings finishing fourth and Toronto, Vancouver and Buffalo outside of the playoffs. In the West, he has Chicago first, of course, and the Blues second. I thought Ed, who always wrote like he was a bit of a homer, but in this case, he has the Flyers down in third place. Minnesota fourth, Pittsburgh, Oakland, and Los Angeles out of the playoffs. Seems to be a trend with the Kings finishing last in the West for the second year in a row. The Montreal Gazette's Pat Curran, he's their uh, top hockey writer, he sees the races this way. He has Boston, New York, and then his Canadians third with Detroit fourth, and then Toronto, Buffalo, and Vancouver out of the playoffs in the east. And in the west, again, it's Chicago with uh, Minnesota, St. Louis, and Pittsburgh in the playoffs. Curran sees Oakland, the Flyers, and the Kings on the bottom in the west. The Toronto Globe and Mail gave the job of prognostications to both of Dick Beddoes and Jim Proudfoot. Proudfoot's picks have New York winning the East with the Canadians rising to second, Boston in third, and Detroit in fourth. Toronto, Vancouver, and Buffalo on the out of the playoffs. And in the West, of course, it's Chicago with Minnesota in second spot and then St. Louis and Oakland with Pittsburgh, L.A., and Proudfoot has the Flyers in last place. With Dick Beddoes, he's got Boston leading the East with Montreal, New York, and Detroit in the playoffs. Toronto, Vancouver, and Buffalo in that order outside. In the Western Division, of course, it's uh, Chicago, but Beddoes picks the Pittsburgh Penguins to finish second with the Blues and the North Stars also making the playoffs. And Beddoes also has Philadelphia on the bottom, just behind the Oakland Seals and the LA Kings. Our last set of predictions is by Red Burdett of the Toronto Star. And we left those for last for a good reason. Red provides a bit of a synopsis of strengths and new faces for each of the 14 teams. And we want to give them to you now so that you can actually have a good flavor of what each team had going in 
to this season. Starting with the East Division, Red predicted the Boston Bruins would be a finishing first. He said their strength was a dynamic, overpowering attack led by Bobby Orr. Pretty obvious. New faces for the Bruins? Well, he counted Ted Green as a new face. Uh, He's back from serious head injury last year. Other new faces on the Bruins roster were Reg Leach, a high-scoring right winger from Flin Flon, uh, and Rick McLeish, the talented winger who also can play center from the Peterborough Juniors. Both of those young guys picked in the first round of the amateur draft. Red awards second place in the East to the New York Rangers, whose strength is depth in all positions that makes for a balanced defense and attack. New faces on the Rangers. Backup goalie Jules Villamir was with the Buffalo Bisons of the AHL last year. And rookie Silaps Jr., Jack Eagers, and a young center by the name of Don Luce. Third in the East, according to Red of the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, the strength there, speed and firepower. The flying Frenchman will score lots of goals, according to Red. New faces in Montreal, uh, Bill Collins and Claude LaRose, both from Minnesota, and rookies Guy Lapointe, Mark Tardif, Larry Plough, Pierre Bouchard, and Ken Dryden, still with the club at the end of training camp, possibly as backup goalkeeper. Here's uh, one of Red's surprising picks in fourth place in the East, Forever the Maple Leafs with Red, and he picks Toronto for fourth. Their strength is a solid center core, paced by Davey Keon and Norm Ullman. New faces, well, there's goalie Jacques Plante from the Blues, Guy Trache, who came over from the Rangers organization, and rookies Larry McIntyre, Daryl Sittler, Brad Selwood, Bob Livington, and Brian Spencer. Fifth place in the East, Red Doug. Uh, Always like Punch Imlac, and he gives them the benefit of the doubt here, picking the Buffalo Sabres to finish fifth. The strength in the Sabres, good goalkeeping with Roger Crozier, and that is their only strength from what uh, Red could see. The new faces, well, the top rookies were Gilbert Perrault, Steve Cuddy, who recently went to Salt Lake of the Western Hockey League, and Butch Detmarsh Red feels that Cuddy will be back with the Sabres before long. Next to Detroit Red Wings and their strengths, uh, they have a gifted attack paced by Gordy Howe, Alex Delvecchio, Frank Mahovlich, and Gary Unger. New faces on the Red Wings, Tom Webster, who came from Boston by way of Buffalo in that trade for Roger Crozier, and rookies Jerry Hart, Doug Volmar, and Rick McCann. And bringing up the rear in the Eastern Division, the Vancouver Canucks, Red says their strengths are size, muscle, and determination of fringe players to prove they belong in the NHL. New faces on Vancouver include rookies Dale Talon, Barry Wilkins, Jim Hargraves, and goalie Ed Dick, who was still with the club, but was expected to be sent to the minors momentarily. In the Western Division, Red was like everybody else, picking Chicago to finish first. Strength where the Blackhawks, superior scoring, spearheaded by Bobby Hull and Stan Makita. Excellent goaltending in the persons of Tony Esposito and Jerry Desjardins. 
New faces on the Blackhawks were rookie Larry Romanchuk and Dan Maloney, their first round pick from the London Juniors in June. Red has the St. Louis Blues in second in the West. Their strength, solid defense, which gives up a, a few, very few goals. And Captain Red Berenson is one of the very best players in that Western division. New faces on the Blues. Bob Wall came from the LA Kings and uh, forwards Jim Lorenz and Chris Christian Bordelow were picked up from Boston and Montreal respectively and they have rookies George Morrison and Mike Lowe both college players one in the United States and one at Loyola in Montreal. Red had the Minnesota North Stars in third place in the West. Strengths in the North Stars were great goalkeeping with Gump Worsley and Cesar Maniego uh, between the pipes for them and they have some very fascinating two-way forwards according to Red. Their new faces, well, Ted Harris, Bobby Russo came over from Canadians and they have some really nice looking rookies in Fred Barrett, Jude Druin and Buster Harvey. While many prognostications have the Flyers behind the Kings in last place, Red picks them for fourth in the West. The strength, according to Red, for the Flyers is outstanding goalkeeping, and you can't deny that. Bernie Perrant and Doug Favell form possibly the best goaltending tandem in the entire National Hockey League. New faces that the Flyers were bringing in were Bill Lesouk and Barry Ashby, both who played for Hershey last year in the American League. Uh, they got George Schwarbrick from Pittsburgh, and they have uh, rookie Murray Wilson from Ottawa, and a young kid by the name of Bob Kelly, they call him the Hound Dog, who came from the Oshawa Juniors. Red has the Oakland, or if you want to call them Bay Area Seals, just missing the playoffs in fifth, and their best strength is goalie Gary Smith, who has really matured into a tough-light netminder. New faces on the Seals, Gary Crotto, Bob Snedden, Dennis Hextall. Uh, rookies that are coming along are Tony Featherston, first-round draft pick Chris Odlifson, Pete Laframbois, a later-round pick, and a defenseman by the name of Ron Stackhouse. Red has the Pittsburgh Penguins back in sixth spot. The Penguins have good goaltending in Les Binkley and Al Smith. And the uh, Red Kelly is actually a strength of this team as he's got the team uh, engaging in some fine positional play and uh, the forwards are back-checking very well. New faces, well, Andy Bathgate is back, actually. Uh, he comes from the Vancouver Canucks of the Western League. Lowell McDonald was picked up in the draft from the LA Kings. Terry Ball, the same way from Philadelphia. And they have a couple of fine-looking uh, rookies that were drafted in June. Greg Paulus from Estevan and John Stewart, who comes from Flin Flon. And the final uh, team in the West is the LA Kings. Uh, and they have improved themselves at center ice with the additions of Bob Pulford. Uh, and they already have Yuha Whiting and Ed Joel and Butch Goring in place. So their center core is maybe the strongest in the Western Division. And I don't know why everybody was picking them so low. I actually had them a little higher. Uh, the new faces on the Kings, Pulford, as we mentioned, along with Ray Fortin from St. Louis, Larry Mickey and Jack Norris were brought in from Montreal, and they have rookies Bob Barry, Mike Byers, and Gary Deneen. Those are the picks and a little bit of a synopsis for each of the 14 teams by the Toronto Stars venerable sports writer, Red Burnett. 
And if anybody really cares, uh, I kept a lot of those papers from 50 years ago that I wrote my picks, and I happened to have the listing that I, I gave at that time last year. Now, I gave myself a pass on poor predictions, given that I'm nowhere near as uh, well-informed as Red Burnett, Jim Proudfoot, Dick Beddoes, and all the rest. Although I thought, you know, I was a journalism student at the time, and I thought I, I did as well as uh, a young journalism student from Lowbanks, Ontario could. In the East, I had Boston leading the way with New York, a close second, then Montreal, and I had the Leafs fourth, and that was probably my uh, blue-colored glasses that had me going there, with Buffalo, Detroit, and Vancouver in that order. In the West, of course, Chicago first. I had the Flyers second, basically because an old goaltender sticks with the good goalkeeping, and that's what the Flyers had. Then it was St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Minnesota, Oakland, and I had the Kings last. Looking back on that, when I saw their centers, I should have had them a lot higher. And so the National Hockey League 1970-71 season opened Friday, October 9th in Vancouver with the Los Angeles Kings providing the opposition. And there to broadcast the game was the CBC Coast to Coast with the very first game broadcast on the CBC that did not involve the Maple Leafs or Canadians as the home team. And this was a pretty big deal to Canadians across the country. It was such a big deal to the CBC that Danny Gallivan was brought in to do the play-by-play. Tonight's the night the Vancouver Canucks play their first NHL game, meeting the Los Angeles Kings here at the Coliseum. Coach Hal Aiko talks about it in a moment. So good evening, everybody. This is Al Davidson with Danny Gallivan and Jim Robson welcoming you to the National Hockey League and its play in the city of Vancouver. And Danny Gallivan has been around hockey for many years, Danny. This is a first view. It has to be with another Canadian city entering the National Hockey League. Al, this is uh, what has to be termed, of course, to use a bit of a cliche term, a historic moment here in Vancouver because, as you say, this is the first game for the Vancouver Canucks here in the National Hockey League. And these two teams here tonight, Los Angeles and Vancouver, will kick off the 1970-71 edition of the National Hockey League. I've been in Vancouver since Tuesday, and I have been most impressed with the enthusiasm of the people generally and the great work being done by the officials of the Vancouver Canucks team right from the president down. And if this enthusiasm continues, then the success of this club, of course, is assured. One of the most uh, surprising things about the Canucks' first ever game, at least to me, the Vancouver papers the next day described the crowd as near capacity. And I couldn't figure that out. After years of Vancouver whining that they were refused entry when the NHL expanded in 1967, the best the city of Vancouver could do was just nearly fill up the place. How, how was that even possible? How could even a handful of tickets go unsold? Well, I guess maybe it was just those laid-back left-coast folks. Maybe. I don't know. 
Now, to be fair, the place was rocking, and there were 15,062 paid admissions, according to the uh, Vancouver Suns hockey writer Hal Sigurdsson. But nonetheless, there were several hundred fans who came to the rink disguised as empty seats, and that just didn't seem right on the first game for the new Vancouver Canucks. It was quite a night, though, even though the Kings did take a 3-1 win in a game that could hardly be described as an artistic masterpiece. And there were quite a few firsts that occurred as well, and we have a few of them for you. Uh, The first man introduced on the night was Bob McCusker, who represented the Vancouver Canucks of the 1960s. The biggest, longest, prolonged ovation for Fred Cyclone Taylor, who helped the Vancouver team win the Stanley Cup in 1915. The first booze, of course, for Mayor Tom Terrific, they call him Tom Campbell. And the first ceremonial face-off victory, Tom Campbell won the face-off off the Public Works uh, Minister for Vancouver, Art Lang. By the way, in the first real mistake made in this night, uh, they didn't have a speaker representing the National Hockey League to actually make remarks at the opening faceoff, and I found that really, really strange. The first official faceoff winner of this game, by the way, was the Canucks' Andre Boudria, who won the draw from the Kings' Bob Pulford. The first shot on goal in the game was recorded by the Kings' Eddie Joyelle at 3.17 of the first period, a period which was scoreless. The first save, Canucks goalie George Gardner. The first Canucks shot on goal, Boudria had that, and it was only 15 seconds after Joyelle fired his drive at Gardner. The first penalty called in that game was Bobby Pulford of the Kings for delay of game, and that was at 4.26 of the first period. The first fight just a little over a minute later when Orland Curtinback took out the Kings' young defenseman Dale Hoganson, and they battled to a draw. The first misconduct in Canucks history was earned by Pat Quinn at 11.28 of that scoreless first period. The first goal scored in the new Vancouver existence in the NHL was by Ross Lonsberry of the LA Kings at 9.26 of the second period. It goes to Gardner. He cleared it away from Pulford. And now from behind the net, Sly gets it down the ice. And the Kings have to go back after it. Neither team has looked particularly potent in the power play department tonight. Put it more positively, each team has been solid killing off penalties. Now over the line, Lonsbury back to Joyelle to Pulford. There's the screen. They score! Lonsbury on Pulford's rebound. The first Vancouver Canucks goal in their history was scored at 2.14 of the final period, and it was uh, netted by defenseman Barry Wilkins. So we just have two minutes on either side, so it would appear that we have major penalties to Pema and Lonsbury. Yes, that's it, because each team out there with but four skaters. Number 20, Here's the Bob Pulford for roughing two minutes. Vancouver penalty to number two, Gary Doak. 
for roughing two minutes. Los Angeles penalty to number eight, Ross Lunsbury, for fighting five minutes. Vancouver penalty to number 15, Roser Paymont, for fighting five minutes. The time, 1.41. So there you have it, 1.41. Now Vancouver at center ice, led by Lundy in over the L.A. line, going in as Boudria. A pass goes to the far side, turning around. Here's Barry Wilkins. There's a jolly score! The following evening, the Buffalo Sabres made their National Hockey League debut before a crowd of 11,199 in Pittsburgh against the financially troubled Penguins. It was a shocking result as the Sabres, winners in their very first NHL game, edging the Penguins by a 2-1 score. It was a storybook finish to a first game as who else but the young superstar in waiting, Gilbert Perrault, would score the winning goal, his first in an illustrious NHL career. Jim Watson scored the Sabres' other goal and he'll go down in history as the answer to a trivial question of who was the first goal getter in Buffalo's NHL history. The Penguins outshot the Sabres by a margin of 36-20 to 20, but Buffalo netminder Roger Crozier was the real story in this game as he stood on his head to give the Sabres a win in their very first game uh, justifying that trade last summer that saw Tom Webster sent to the Red Wings from the uh, Sabres for Crozier. The young Sabres made a few rookie mistakes, especially in their own zone, but on almost every occasion, it was the veteran Crozier who bailed them out. This could be a recurring factor this season for the Sabres, Crozier being the main man in goal, but this Buffalo team cannot give up shots 36 a game every night and expect Crozier to remain healthy. Imlac's going to have to find a way to cut the activity in his own defensive zone or Roger won't last a month. He'll be shell-shocked long before that. But nobody was thinking about that on this night. The Sabres, winners in their first NHL game, and that certainly bodes well for the future of hockey in Buffalo. So that's our show for this week, everyone. And what did we learn as a new National Hockey League season was about to dawn and, in fact, did get underway? Well, we learned that Maple Leaf captain Davey Keon will be paid by the team as he finally agreed to a new deal, but he's not the highest paid player in the team history. We saw some ominous signs on how Ned Harkness is going to be running the Red Wings. We think NHL players are going to prove to be much different than the college kids he's used to coaching. And we learned that the NHL governors made some rule changes in an effort to avoid the foolishness that was found at the end of the 69-70 season. And of course, we learned that the Buffalo Sabres and Vancouver Canucks actually were going to play in the NHL this year as they both experienced their first regular season competition. Next week, we'll have uh, reports on all the other opening games and a few surprises that came along the way. We'll have another Montreal Canadiens player calling it quits and retiring. Could a trade lure him back to the NHL? Uh, 
We'll see who he is and what the chances of that were. And the four holdouts from the New York Rangers will finally sign their contracts and we'll have all the details on that for you as well as much, much more. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole and we can't thank him enough for all the hard work he puts into this every week, Andy puts out a first-rate product, and, and I can't thank him enough. Uh, the Rural Alberta Advantage is a Toronto indie rock group, and they provide our introduction and our exit music. If you ever get to see them perform live, take advantage. It's a great show. Other sound effects, musical pieces in the podcast are provided by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files at the Toronto Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, and all the fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years, and we have reports every day on the news from around the hockey world from 50 years ago. You can get us on our WordPress site, at Hockey50YearsAgo.com and on Facebook under Hockey 50 Years Ago in Hockey. Sorry, And of course, this podcast can be found wherever fine podcasts can be downloaded. Thanks again to everyone who tunes into our show. It's going to be an exciting 1970-71 season and we hope you'll be with us all the way. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the ice-